Uh, this is Josh Archer right here, and uh, might as well test out the mic at the same time welcome, welcoming everyone to uh, this month's Mac Learning Environments uh, webcast. And uh, I want to take a brief moment just to introduce the interface that we're uh, interacting through right now, the Illuminate Live uh, conference interface. We uh, have in the past done uh, video-only uh, broadcasts with a, a chat. But this is a slightly new environment for us. So just to give you a little bit of a uh, background of what you're looking at here, we have the main screen that's on the right-hand side. That's a shared screen that the presenters will be using to give us information and allow us to view uh, whatever resources they want us to see. In the uh, left-hand side, we have the chat column. On the upper hand, we see everyone that's logged in. You can scroll up and down and see uh, your names there and other people's names there. And we have a few little uh, emoticons that are available to us. Uh, right here, you have the smiley face and the frustrated face, the clapping hand and the down thumb. And there's also a large button that uh, indicates raising your hand. So if everybody can just go ahead and, and click one of those buttons to uh, show that you uh, know where we're looking at. Great. And when you raise a hand, uh, it's a good way to indicate that you would like to speak. And we have uh, the possibility of, of uh, the back channel chat area that's uh, right below the participants listing. And you go ahead and type whatever you like in there. One thing you should know is that although the chat does allow you to do private messaging between individuals on the list, moderators are able to see everything that you chat uh, to one another. So uh, just beware uh, if you want things to be uh, private, use a different chat, and uh, let's try not to have too much traffic and, and keep it on topic. Down below uh, on the lower left-hand side, we have a uh, audio panel that has a microphone on it. And that microphone is shared. If you have a headset with a microphone or some means of communicating, you can go ahead and chime in vocally, uh, what we do ask is that you raise your hand before you, you do chime in so that we uh, know that you are wanting to speak and that we keep things a little bit orderly. Okay, great. So let me introduce uh, the Mac Learning Environments for those who are not sure or aware of, of what we are. Mac Learning Environments is a community of educators, technologists, IT professionals, developers, and change agents dedicated to transforming learning environments through innovation built on open standards. As a group, we are chiefly concerned with creating, implementing, and deploying lead, op leading open source and community source standards-based learning infrastructure solutions on Apple's Unix-based server platform and integrating Apple's digital hub into these newly created digital learning environments. We also support commercial products that interoperate between open specifications and standards built for Mac OS X and Mac OS X server. Sorry. So um, long and short, we are a group of educators and technologists that are interested in Mac technology, Apple technology, as it applies to our uh, purpose in education. So quickly, let me introduce uh, our session for today. It is titled, Small Technologies Loosely Joined, Open, Connected, and Social, many to many in parentheses. Our speakers today are um, Darcy Norman of the University of Calgary's Teaching and Learning Center, Brian Lamb of UBC, Alan Levine of the New Media Consortium, and Jim Groom of the University of Mary Washington. Uh, all of our speakers today are renowned and, in many cases, award-winning bloggers, uh, technologists, 
and uh, very expert public speakers. And we're in for a treat today as they present what they have given as a jazz-like quartet on different subjects in the quote-unquote Web 2.0 technology sphere. So at this point, I'm going to go ahead and hand it over to the boys and let uh, Darcy uh, take it from here. Uh, well, hi, everyone. And first, uh, welcome to the session. We've got a, a four-part uh, quartet coming up here. We've got some topics uh, that we're going to each uh, address one topic uh, and in a little bit of, of depth. What we've done, though, is it's actually all on a wiki. So if you don't feel like following along in the uh, Illuminate session, Go ahead and open up a browser to openconnectedsocial.learningparty.net and uh, feel free to uh, uh, go on as you like. Uh, first up, though, is uh, Jim Groom from University of Mary Washington. He's going to talk about the integration of blogs and wikis into uh, what he calls a blicky. Uh, thanks a lot, Darcy. Uh, I don't know if my microphone's coming over too loud. Um, I'm uh, really happy and honored to be presenting with this group of people. And in fact, I think I present as a member of a larger um, group here at Mary Washington, the Division of Teaching and Learning Technologies. And we actually have taken this idea of the small pieces loosely joined, which this kind of presentation is being loosely based on um, what happened back in 2004, and we've run with it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what we've done over the last about year, year and a half, and how we've taken this philosophy of being limber and flexible and kind of um, used it throughout the university. Uh, let me start with the objective. I'm listening to a podcast back with um, Cole Campbellese and Darcy about two months ago. Darcy made a, made a point that I think is pretty important, and the point is this, is how do you push all these new technologies without having a base? And I think the base that a lot of people have agreed on, we have in particular at Mary Washington, is the base of the wiki and the blog. So we're still using those as our two bases to kind of move to all the other kind of loosely joined tools and to kind of house them there. Um, what I'm talking about in terms of an objective is this idea of how do we integrate blogging applications and wiki software, not only throughout the university and throughout the campus, but how do we start making these two um, these two applications talk to one another more in more sophisticated ways. And along these lines, this is where John Maxwell, I went to Northern Voice 2007 this year, and it was a really generative conference. Um, a lot of great people, um, a lot of great thinking. Uh, and one of the things that really kind of struck me was John Maxwell's Thinkubator. And I have a link to it in the wiki. But what it basically is, is the wiki acting like a blog. And so I've actually um, been really interested in what he did and how he took the wiki and you know, reconfigured it to really look like a blog. He was using ZWiki uh, by Zope, but a lot of what we're thinking about uses tools more like MediaWiki or WordPress. So one of my own colleagues here at the University of Mary Washington, Andy Rush, and this has actually gotten some hits from the people around the educational technology blogosphere, has done something where he's integrated the look and feel of WordPress and MediaWiki to be more seamless. Now, this is just a visual aesthetic integration, but I think the logic of it is pretty powerful. Um, most of the site that Darcy just referred you to at the beginning of this talk is actually premised on this integration. If you look around the site, you'll see that there's a blog, a single installation of WordPress. There's also a wiki, a wiki that has the same theme. But there's, in addition, a WordPress multi-user that actually allows people to kind of you know, propagate their own um, 
blogs within this environment. And part of what we're thinking about and playing with is how do we create an environment using these loose tools and bring all the other technologies that Darcy, Brian, and Alan will be talking about um, quite effectively. So I've actually played with Andy's. Another thing we're doing, and this is kind of where the idea of the bleaky, a little bit glib, but I still think um, somewhat interesting, is how are we going to take the blog and the wiki and start thinking about them in a more integrated manner. And here at DTLT at Mary Washington, we've actually started experimenting with this a little bit. Um, there's actually a page, if you're in the, the Blicky presentation on the wiki, there's a page that will suggest how the two might work together. And this idea actually is you have a blog, you have a wiki. The two maybe are independent. What happens if you take the wiki, you have that information you're constantly updating, you're collaboratively working on. You take that information and you feed it out into a certain page or post within the blog. Logic being is you create a little PHP script that pulls that information into a blog, and the blog kind of acts more like a content management system than, say, uh, a blogging software. Or it could do both. It's a way to kind of structurally build in and allow for blog posts to be constantly changed, edited, and using the two in a kind of more seamless way. Um, Typo3, which is an open source content management system that I've played with a lot before I kind of started thinking of WordPress exclusively as a content management system, had a plugin that did this. It just went into MediaWiki, any MediaWiki URL you specify, and it pulled the information in. Well, we've been actually playing with creating a plugin like that for WordPress that will actually take an article from a wiki and just build it right into um, a WordPress blog. And that blog starts to be kind of framed and looked a lot more like uh, a CMS that's feeding off of the wiki space that's collaborative. The potential for this, I think, is pretty amazing. Um, part of the potential might be we use Contribute right now for our kind of content management, very loose, easy system. What happens if we use WordPress multi-user with this kind of wiki integration and allow people to do their content management for all of the university through a wiki and a WordPress kind of um, integration? Could be quite interesting. Um, another thing I want to talk about, and this is kind of by way of conclusion or, or by way of just allowing you to think about some of this stuff, is the environment we framed out here um, is an environment that's dealing specifically with MediaWiki and WordPress. But we actually have an example that Dr. Glue, or Gardner Campbell, is working through right now in one of his classes. Um, there's a link on the wiki page that will take you to Professor Campbell's film, text, and culture class. And what we did here is kind of moves into some of the things that Darcy will be talking about with feeds and OPML. Um, we actually allowed the students using WordPress multi-user to all get their own blog. Um, have their own feeds and categories for a particular class, and then feed them into particular pages within that blog. So what you have, in fact, is you have this distributed learning environment where each student has their own space, call it a portfolio, call it their own blog, call it what you will, um, where they actually feed onto specific pages. And from there, you can actually use uh, some plugins for WordPress. Uh, two I'm using now are Optimal which just allows me to publish an LPML file from, say, BlogBridge, and then feed it in. And then you also have those spaces where you can actually um, 
use an RSS reader like SimplePy to just show the most recent posts from all the student blogs. So it's kind of this makeshift space or central space for a class that's coming from all the students' distributed um, blogs, etc., which kind of gets at the point that a lot of people have been talking about with this personal learning environment of keeping the space for yourself, but also allowing it to feed into certain places and work and move from there. Um, kind of to get back to the point of what I was saying about MediaWiki and the blog, um, David Wiley created what I think is a fascinating little bookmarklet called SentaWiki. Any page you go on, you click on that bookmarklet and we'll take it into that MediaWiki install. What we're kind of thinking about with the blog and WordPress, or the blog and wiki integration is kind of the opposite. Take what you have in a wiki, in a media wiki, and you feed it out to another source. You feed it out to a blog page, etc., and you're allowed to structure that. So kind of riffing to a little degree, to some degree on what David Wiley's already developing, just kind of thinking about it in the reverse. Um, I would actually end by the by saying, or my part by just saying that Blogs and wikis for us have pretty much been the cornerstone of all our innovation. Um, we've been able to innovate mainly because we don't deal at all with kind of infrastructure and network concerns. We do all external hosting, and we actually have our own play environments in which we can do this. This has allowed us to set up multiple blogs, media wikis, et cetera, and just play. Um, and that playing has been kind of generative in the possibilities of creating these alternative learning spaces, these environments, um, these ideas that are still very much in development, but at the same time, um, they're quite useful um, for seeing where we might go. And I know that Alan, Darcy, and Brian will have a lot more to say about that. Um, so by way of a conclusion, uh, I don't know. The bleaky, it's an idea, but it may be one that has some possibility. Uh, okay, so I st still have time. I would actually, if I do have time, Darcy, I don't know if you can do this. Um, go to Gardner Campbell's class. Um, that's the one, uh, Professor Campbell's film, text, and culture, most recent posts. Oh. Here's a good example of Um, here's a good example, I think, of a kind of connected um, learning space that, and I'll actually, while he tries to do it, I'll show you quickly. I'm sorry, give me a second. While he tries to go there, I'll show you quickly what it what it does. It actually takes just two plugins from WordPress, and as he goes to it, you'll see this. It takes a plugin called Optimal and a plugin also called BDP RSS. And what each of these do is they allow you to kind of group together a bunch of specific feeds. WordPress in particular has category feeds, so each of these students can use their blog for several different courses. I mean, they could use it for English 101. They could use it for a History 300. They could use it, et cetera, for a science. Um, but what it does is it takes each of these category feeds and it puts them in one group. It groups them together. So what you have is you have the most recent feeds constantly um, showing up as you move through. Uh, it also allows you to see it also allows you to see, so I'm not going to be able to show it, so I'll just talk it through. It also allows you to see each of the students' blogs as well as comments all in one space. And you can kind of, I think it just came up, you can kind of see here, these blogs are all independent running on a WordPress multi-user.
up on one central page, most recent coming up first, you can click on any one of those arrows and see their five or six most recent posts. And if you scroll all the way down, you'll actually get a sense through this BDP RSS plugin, you'll get a clear sense of who's been commenting on who, who's been using, um, who's been talking to who. There's also a space for trackbacks. So you actually get a sense. It's kind of I like it because it's completely decentralized. All these blogs, they're students' blogs. We just take the feeds and put them into one space. What I would like to see ultimately is I would like to see a space here where the class also has a wiki that integrates right into what they're doing here. And that would move us towards a conversation I had briefly with Brian Lamb when we were out at uh, Vancouver at Northern Voices is, What's the next step? Well, we've done WordPress multi-user that's been relatively successful. Um, the next step maybe would be play with Wiki Farms and see how the two can integrate more specifically. I know we're a relatively small school, 3,000, 4,000 liberal arts college, so we have some room to play. But Arizona State University, over 50,000 students are doing something quite similar. So I, maybe it is something that scales. And it may not replace the course management system, but a lot of what we're doing isn't interested. Um, we're really not overly interested in the course management system. We're interested in creating a personal learning environment for our students, something that they can take with them when they go, they can export it, or they can even set up on WordPress.com and just give us the feeds. So that's kind of what we've been playing with and how we've been still s seeing wikis and blogs as that kind of core um, technology to play through. Um, as you see, if you look around the site that we've created, you can build in a little arcade. Um, you can do with multimedia, which I think is the most important, is multimedia plays so nice with both of these technologies now. Andy Rush also built in, um, showed us how to do the YouTube videos, the Google videos, and a lot of other um, details. But I may be going over my time. Uh, that's just kind of a, a quick and dirty of what we're doing here at University of Washington and how we think about these ideas of uh, small tools Lucy joined and how we've actually taken Brian, Allen's, Darcy's, and to some extent Stephen Downs, which has been doing this for a long time, taken that philosophy and trying to build it into a campus approach to instructional technologies. And to some degree, we've had some success. And uh, I think the next year we'll be even more as these WordPress multi-user accounts really take hold. So thank you very much. I think uh, I'm the guy who's slotted to come up next, so uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid uh, waiting for Darcy to introduce me, although it would make me feel so good if he did. And I guess if he wants to jump over to my section on mashups, then uh, uh, I'll just start blabbing away. Um, if you scroll down a little bit, you see that, that top image uh, that I found on Flickr yesterday, uh, which of course is such a wonderful source to be able to find an image on just about any subject, Creative Commons license, usually in about five minutes. And I think that image just kind of says a lot of how I got interested in the whole idea of mashups. A little bit of personal uh, biography stuff. Uh, I remember listening to Negative Land like when I was in high school uh, in their earliest stuff and some of the stuff they were doing. And I remember right from the very beginning the concept of taking something, preferably something pirated, something slightly subversive. Uh, Negative Land was probably best known for taking some uh, pirated audio of Casey Kasem going absolutely nuts in the studio and, and saying horrible things about U2 and remixing it into a single that was ultimately banned by U2. Um, eventually that whole saga was put together in a wonderful documentary film called Sonic Outlaws by Craig Baldwin. Um, 
so this whole idea of taking content, uh, taking it completely out of its context, recontextualizing it, and of course that's nothing new. Um, you know, through the 20th century, Clausart did it, and there have been uh, 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 antecedents to that practice as well. But anyway, I've just always been a huge fan of that whole idea of mashup and 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 this. Although I'm going to mostly be talking about data mashups, I have to admit I kind of got sucked into that whole area of interest more or less by just indulging uh, my teenage self who always loved it. So I'll, the, I do have a quick brief digression on that section on content mashups, and uh, I, I did embed a YouTube video. Uh, that just, you know, if you haven't seen it, it's a lot of fun. I think we all have our favorite YouTube videos that take something and, and whip it and, and change it into something completely different. This particular one is a, a combination of um, old clips from the original Star Trek series uh, to the uh, Knights of the Round Table song from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And uh, I mean, again, that just kind of speaks to that subversive nature. And also, I mean, what I often find is that you'll find these juxtapositions, and this is something that the modernists always made that point when they talked about collage and montage, that these strange juxtapositions often reveal things about those original uh, bits and uh, create something new and something really fresh. And I wish I could just sit and talk about this, but I suspect that there's more of interest to the stuff further down. I do, as an aside, though, just want to kind of make a point about content remix, um, and that is that um, you know, Alan and Darcy, uh, we kind of, and myself, got to know each other because we were something like refugees from the uh, uh, from the learning objects world, and we were all at the time trying to promote this idea of educational reuse. And I think what got us to do the original small pieces loosely joined is what we noticed was while we were pushing the idea of uh, kind of discrete content chunks being assembled inside of a course management system and, you know, really wasn't flying. Um, here we were on our blogs, uh, putting our stuff up, taking each other's stuff. Um, you know, Alan would throw up a weblog workshop and I would take it and, you know, use 80% of it but put in my own local contextual links and maybe throw in a resource that Darcy had put together or Stephen Downs had put together. And, you know, here we were in the learning objects world trying to promote content reuse and it just wasn't happening. But here we were in our little bloggy wiki world sharing resources all the time and it seemed easy and not only was it easy, it was fun. And uh, I think something that defined that original small piece of loosely joint event and a couple other things we did at the time was a sense that we felt like there was a model that had just emerged here without anyone really telling us what to do. Whereas here in this other side, here we were trying to construct something that just wasn't happening. So I think this idea of content remix, that maybe you don't have to go quite as far as Monty Trek, uh, but at the same time, uh, looking at the models of what content remix, and that could be something as simple as cutting and pasting some text and making whatever small changes you need to make to make it relevant to your own local context. Is, is a powerful one, but it's amazing how this still seems to be something of a minority view. And feel free to push back on that uh, assertion. Um, that is my perception that this is still something of a fringe activity. Uh, maybe it isn't. But it seems to me that for that idea of content uh, remix to come to fruition, we need a few things. And one is discoverable resources. Uh, on my blog, I should have thrown a link onto it. Uh, I posted a link to uh, David Wiley's uh, talk that he gave up there in Vancouver. And really what he said was the most important thing to have in terms of uh, in terms of 
promoting content reuse really has to be openness. Um, and what he means by that is if you're putting your content in a content management system and you're depending on something like um, content exporting in an IMS content package, okay, you might be able to theoretically reuse that material within a course management system, but I'm never going to even know you have it. Um, you know, and the whole repository model, I, I think, I, I'm not even going to take that on because I think at this point it's almost a straw man. So you need to be able to find it. And what we've all learned with Google is if it's on that open web, we're going to find what we need. And the wonderful thing about the blogosphere is, is it provides Google juice for the best resources. So you get this really kind of interesting emergent uh, content um, annotation and recommender system emerging. Uh, it's very ad hoc. And it's hard to conceptualize, but those of us who work in this field know that it just works. So first of all, you've got to be able to find it. Um, and then the second piece that's really important, and a couple people are making this point in the con contest, you need transparent open licensing. And by that, we need to know that when you find something, you've got to know how you can use it or if you can use it. And uh, you know, Creative Commons, I think, is the best framework for that. There's lots of interesting, controversial discussions out there happening. Um, but, you know, again, I think that's a fundamental and an obvious thing. And if you're not licensing your work for Creative Commons, I would really challenge you to ask yourself why you want and what it is you're trying to accomplish by making your work less accessible to others. Uh, open remixable formats, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be open source. Um, an MP3, I, I think MP3, the format was recently released to the world, but I mean, that was a proprietary format, but it was an open format that was widely used. And the fact is, if you put something in MP3 format, like, for example, that recording I did of David Wiley's talk, it was very easy for me to go through that 38-minute keynote, pull out three, two or three-minute clips that I thought were the most interesting. So I hope by doing that, and I had a little feedback suggest this was the case, instead of forcing people to listen to that 38-minute talk, which I would say did justify 38 minutes, but most people don't have 38 minutes, you could sit down, you could invest five minutes of time get a sense of what the talk was about, and then maybe decide whether you want to invest that 40 minutes of your time. Um, another recent talk by Gardner Campbell was in real audio format on the website. It's a wonderful talk as well, but I can't do that. Um, and uh, I, again, those are the types of decisions we need to really make. And then I think enhanced cultural technical literacy, not, most of what I've just described uh, you know, being able to link to something on the web, being able to cut and paste some text, being able to download an MP3 and do some basic audio work, uh, all those types of things I'm talking about, they were, they've been eminently doable for a long time. There's nothing new about that. Um, and, and we're seeing more of that practice, but I would argue that, uh, you know, it's not just the ability of people to reuse materials, although that's a huge technical literacy issue. Uh, I think as more and more individuals are empowered to feel like they can do those kinds of simple tasks, now we're going to have a much more dynamic educational discourse happening and more real, genuine resource sharing happening, but a willingness to do so. Um, I think we're still kind of locked in a kind of almost renaissance era mindset that originality is all or that reuse is somehow a uh, diminished form of activity. And given that, um, you know, I think scholarly work doesn't work that way. And really, if we look at how our practice work, it doesn't work that way anywhere. Um, we really need to take that on in a much more aggressive way. Anyhow, um, so I'll stand down to data mashups. I'll try not to take too much time. But what do you mean by a data mashup? Well, you know, whatever you think about Wikipedia epistemically, 
uh, it is a pretty good snapshot of what the online community uh, thinks of things. So I just took the Wikimedia definition of mashup in terms of uh, application. And what they describe is a, a website or an application that combines content from more than one source into an integrated experience. Um, so in other words, uh, the best thing to do is just look at examples. And I, we don't have time to really look at them here. But if you haven't seen these examples, I certainly would um, encourage you to take a poke at them. I think the, the example that really made me start to quote unquote get mashups to whatever extent I do get them uh, was the housing maps example, um, which took the wonderful site Craigslist, which posts uh, uh, free classified ads on any number of subjects. In this case, uh, they took the data for Craigslist uh, apartment vacancies and then layering that over Google Maps. And so you had a third party essentially take data from the Craigslist free classified ads, laying it on top of a free Google map, and without doing any real programming to the immediate sources of either end, was able to create a third resource which allowed you to take a look at, your, at the neighborhood you wanted to look at uh, via Google Maps and actually see with little push pins exactly where the apartment vacancies were. Um, a second one along those lines uh, which really opened my eyes was John Udell's uh, library lookup bookmarklet. Essentially what that did was, and, and I don't mean to diss librarians here, but uh, I, I really tend to find myself always being frustrated when I go to library catalogs online trying to find a book. Even when I think I know the title, uh, it seems like most library catalogs are quite rigid things. Whereas Amazon, I can often go into the Amazon site with only a vague idea of the book I'm looking for. I might not even be able to remember the title or the author name, but I almost always seem to be able to find it, mostly because of Amazon's wonderful use of contextual uh, metadata to uh, enhance their search experience. So what John Udell did was create the ability to search within Amazon and or any other site that generates an ISBN and via this bookmarklet be able to see if your own local library actually has that book in. And uh, I won't go too many more examples, but that uh, site programmable web uh, is just a constant source of uh, mashup goodness. Just yesterday, uh, they posted a site. I live in Vancouver, and I, as a result, if I want to do holiday, I take a lot of ferries if we want to go anywhere in the region. I found a really interesting mashup using uh, Microsoft's uh, mapping software to actually create uh, updated ferries, uh, ferry uh, statuses, and actually showing where the stuff is. So I'm not going to talk too much longer. I, I, I just, you know, I kind of created a little mashup of my own below on the data mashups. Others said it better uh, section. I'll just try to call, pull up what I think is the key takeaway of each point. Um, and feel free to uh, read the text yourself and uh, follow the links and go a little deeper. But uh, beyond uh, Hinchcliffe's point, I think the thing that's key here is just how did these mashups came up? I think through a lot of the reasons whereas there's been so many other changes online, more connectivity, more bandwidth, just a generally more mature online set of communities, people being able to do more stuff. And then at the same time, some lightweight service models like RSS and things like Ajax uh, making these experiences a little easier and a little groovier. And David Berlin makes what I think is a really critical point about what is exciting about why, should we, why we should care about data mashups and why you know, all of us who are trying to deliver services on our campus should be very interested. And it's that line, uh, you, know, you could deliver with one line of code that calls a networking API to do the work that maybe before would have taken days or weeks of actual hands-on uh, programming to do. 
Jack Schofield underneath. This is from the Guardian, so and that's a that, that link is a good one to follow if you would just like a really nice uh, overview written in non-technical language on what data mashups are. Makes the uh, uh, makes the comparison between an API and, for example, there've been uh, there've been a few uh, recording artists recently who've not only posted their materials online but have actually put their source tracks online to make it easier for people to remix that music. And an API is essentially like doing that. It's saying to people, uh, this is the stuff you're willing to we're willing to expose. This is the stuff you can use. Uh, go at it. Uh, underneath that I linked to a, a, an article by Tim O'Reilly and uh, uh, this points to probably a, a service that hasn't, in my opinion, quite fulfilled the promise of when you play with it. In, in the sense that, but what it does though is it makes it look like essentially with a drag and drop visual interface that's very, very groovy, you can generate mashups without knowing any code at all. Um, I'm not sure that it really works in practice quite that way. Um, I did a, uh, a workshop at Northern Voice with uh, Scott Leslie and Chris Lott and Darcy in which we really tried to create some mashups without doing any programming at all. And we kind of hit some walls, to be frank. But when you play with this service and the ability to clone somebody else's mashup and then make small tweaks to it, what you start to see here is uh, an applic a way of thinking about applications that's kind of equivalent to what web logging was. Web logging, suddenly someone like me with no real technical skills at all could start to publish to the web. Um, now, again, with not very many more programming skills, I can start to think, about uh, programming for the web, and that's exciting. And I just got to give a shout out to Tony Hurst from the Open University. Um, in terms of just actually taking these approaches and really trying to hack together working uh, framework examples, uh, he's just he's the man as far as I'm concerned right now. He's right up there with people like Stephen Downs um, and Raymond Yee as well, who I'll quote below. Um, he has a couple examples of what his approach is. So, for example by connecting, uh, mashing up using pipes delicious and Yahoo search, you could create a site limited search over domains listed in your own delicious bookmarks feed, which strikes me as a very simple and elegant way of tailoring search on the net to things that you're actually interested in. And then he later went on and essentially created the ability to look at all the outgoing links from a course unit, in other words, open content, and then feed that into the Yahoo search pipe and using that as a search limit for the search. And again, a, a very simple, elegant way of creating search that's going to be more relevant for your course context. Um, of course, this approach depends, again, on openness. And uh, that goes back to my original thing. If you're locking your content away in a, uh, in a system that is not accessible and it doesn't have some type of open API or at least an RSS feed, you're not going to be able to play this game. Uh, and this is where openness stops being just something that you do because you want to be a nice person and it becomes something uh, you do because it's in your own interest. Which gets us to Google. Um, Google's had an open API and essentially has had the community doing uh, um, kind of free uh, research and development and programming uh, via their open API. And you've seen the results of some of that stuff both in Google Earth and in my maps from Google which is a very, very simple way of generating kind of your own primitive mashups using Google Maps. I'm not going to follow that. I have to give a shout out to Raymond Yee. He's probably the person who I've seen who's thinking most 
uh, clearly about how this type of approach to web services plays out in terms of the way we deliver uh, service on the web. Uh, I won't read his post, but essentially what he's advocating is taking an attitude much like what Google or say Flickr has done by uh, exposing some of its data and inviting students to be co-developers. You know, and I've heard a few stories in the last few years about students creating their own interfaces that are better than the interfaces being provided to them. And usually they have to do things like scrape data and do it kind of through back channels and they're afraid that anyone's going to find out that they're doing it because they'll get in trouble for creating a superior user experience. Um, through some careful thinking about what web services we expose, um, you know, not, we're really inviting students to be quote unquote active co-developers. And uh, I would urge any of you um, <laughs> who are probably confused by what I'm talking about, just go check out Raymond's work. Um, he, he's, he's thinking very clearly about this. He's going to have a book coming out in the fall. And he's been posting drafts of his book and it's been quite impressive and wonderful stuff. And Scott Leslie, who uh, has helped me think through a lot of this stuff as well, just kind of makes that point uh, a little more pointed. And he recognizes that you know, maybe we're not ready to open up APIs for our student information system full on or our course management system. But at the same time, uh, he makes the point that we can really begin to start at least having that discussion. Another point he makes too is can we start to have that discussion internally? Um, maybe you're not exposing your APIs to the world, but can we expose our APIs to other units on campus or to our student societies? And just as an example of what you know, exposing some feeds and APIs might look like, Unfortunately, there really aren't too many educational examples. Uh, Raymond's proposal linked above is probably the closest thing I've been able to find. But uh, check out the BBC's Gaten APIs and think about why they would be exposing this data and what it is they are getting. And uh, with that, I will uh, pass the mic on to one of my other esteemed co-presenters. Great. Thanks, Brian. That was, that was great. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about connecting uh, websites, content, people, etc., uh, using things like RSS. And before I get right into the stuff, I'm going to actually go back in the time machine a couple of years ago, three years ago now, to uh, 2004, when I had the pleasure of doing a presentation with Alan and Brian called Small Pieces Loosely Joined. At the time, we were basically still trying to figure out what RSS meant and how it would change uh, how people were publishing and finding information. And so we did this presentation. Uh, at the NMC conference in Vancouver. And what we basically did was break it into uh, uh, three different camps. We had the decentralists, so we're all about doing things distributedly with no central control. The centralists, which were the, uh, the institution, they were the man saying this is how things should be done using our officially supported system. And the fence sitters, which we're basically we're, try we're trying to figure out, well, we like the ideas of doing things decentrali decentralized, but we kind of like the idea of having some things managed by an institution. That's how you make things relevant to the class. At the time, we were basically just throwing out ideas. How do you, how would this happen? And the, the tools weren't really mature enough to actually do it. Um, this site is linked from the wiki, uh, the, uh, the wiki page for this presentation. So feel free to go through and look through it because it was actually contributed by the members of uh, the participants of that session. The issues that are in each of these three camps are still very valid. The only thing that's changed since 2004 is that the tools have matured a little bit. So while we had to cobble things together to, to try and do some of this stuff in 2004, there are now some really robust tools that we can actually integrate uh, decentralized resources in a 
in a centralized way so we could actually implement this consider camp, which is I think where most people in universities are. They like the idea of decentralized publishing, but they still need to have control to make it useful in the classroom. Uh, so what I've got uh, on the wiki page for, uh, for the connected part of this presentation, I just grabbed some quotes that really outline the, the philosophy behind this point. I mean, Bruce Lee's quote about be like water, I mean, that really shape, shapes this. One of the problems we've, I've, I've been involved with is there's this desire to come up with the, the perfect enterprise class institutional solution. And it is installed on some really big iron and everybody goes and does it exactly the way that the IT department says it shall be done. The problem with that is no, nobody really wants to do that. And you get things like closed LMSs where content is locked in, nobody can see it. Uh, you lose access to content at the end of your class. Uh, the example of this system actually, uh, our LMS on, on campus, I won't name it just in case anybody's tuning in from there, I recently rolled out a, a blogging solution and it's tied directly to the session of the class that you're in. The day after the class is over, you lose access to any blogging that you've done. And that is pretty much diametrically opposed to what I think this stuff really is all, is all about. This is all, all about being a strong part of lifelong learning. And if we're saying lifelong learning is important, your life is about much more than what class you're in or what sessions you're in. And so in order for, for us to make these resources available, it really needs to be more of an individual control over your, your personal publishing. So people, students and faculty should be blogging wherever they feel comfortable. If that happens to be on an institutional service, that's great. If they're doing it at blogger.com, that's cool too. Uh, but we need to be able to take advantage of that. Uh, David Wiley at his talk at uh, BCNet in Vancouver just recently, the one that uh, Brian alluded to, uh, he, he made some really awesome quotes in there. So if you have 38 minutes, definitely go and listen to the recording. It's linked from, uh, from Brian's blog. Um, but he was talking about the, the difference between the, uh, the LMS structured enterprise approach and the open wiki blog, open content approach. And it really runs down to people are going to do the, the simplest thing they can do and that we need to be able to take advantage of that rather than fighting it. Uh, we can't sit here and say, well, it would be great if only everybody would just use this tool to, uh, to do whatever the, 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 the process is. We need to be taking advantage of it. Where are people publishing? Where are they putting their, their photographs now? Do we want to set up an institutional D space for them to put all their photographs and documents? Or do we want to take advantage of things like Google Docs and Flickr and Delicious where people are already putting stuff? Uh, but the other big quote that's affected my thinking on this stuff lately is actually John Walensky, who did a presentation on wikis in his, uh, his education class uh, while at Northern Voice. And he's got his students actually putting their, their work into a wiki that's freely available. And the, the quote that stuck, he just said, go public. He didn't want his students to be working in a walled garden that people couldn't see. He wanted the students to be publishing, sharing, and putting it out there for each other to use and for, for uh, people outside of the class to use. And that really, if you, if you start seeing that way, uh, this loosely joined, open and connected uh, uh, philosophy really starts to take off. So there's some, some quotes that have kind of been shaping my thinking on this lately. I don't believe there's going to be a one true system that will make everything work. And that is, I think, one of the problems we had with the learning object repository world. We were trying to build the perfect repository. If only we build just the right tool, people will start creating content and sharing it. And obviously that's wrong. We need to be taking advantage of easy ways that people are already publishing, things like blogs and wikis and Facebook and Twitter and you name it. We need to be leveraging what's already out there, not rebuilding. Um, doing things like distributed user controlled. So people can go to LiveJournal and post wherever they want. Now, Josh made a point earlier in the, in the chat channel about tags being an essential 
uh, organizing structure of this. And that's, that's exactly right. If people are posting on their blogs, you don't want to be necessarily having your prof reading about your uh, the bender you had on the weekend or your ski trip, but you do want him to read or her to read whatever you're posting about. Uh, say it's a, uh, a comparative zoology class. You want them to read the article that you're posting on that. So you need to use things like tags to carve out subsets of the various things that you're posting. Um, I'm going to actually show a, a demo of some of this in just a second here because it actually uh, this is all working now and, uh, and it's using free off-the-shelf stuff. Uh, but what we end up with, once we start lever leveraging people's existing online publishing, their personal publishing, is what I call organic adaptive communities. It's a community that may mirror what you have in the classroom. It might, might involve, uh, my group is called Zoology 477 Spring Semester, but you can also create your own groups. And the biggest example I have of this, uh, our faculty of education here at the University of Calgary, uh, we ran a, a pilot project with them with their Master of Teaching program, their student teachers. So these are, are people with bachelor degrees who are going out to get their bachelor of education to become teachers. Part of the program, they go out in the classroom, and they're actually doing their practicum, they're teaching in the classroom, but they need to do some discussion and reflection based on what they've done. And we came up, in this case, with a centralized Drupal system just because there was some really big uh, freedom of information and privacy issues talking about students in a K-12 classroom. But we set it up such that the students could create their own groups and determine which subgroup, which groups would be able to see the posts that they make. And the thing that blew me away, and I talked about this at Northern Voice actually, was the students created groups that we would have never guessed. And the example I keep coming back to is a group that they called Created Moments of Epiphany. I can't imagine an institution that would create a group called Moments of Epiphany, but the students saw a need. They, they, they all had these epiphanies and they wanted to share it with each other. And so they created the group. Twelve students out of the, I think it was 60 in the, in the pilot project joined it. So it's not applicable to everybody, but the people who were interested could join the group and get in. Um, and uh, the, the system we had to do that was just amazing. And the feedback we got from the students, because we let them define what the groups are, um, it was so valuable to them that they actually don't want to let go. And they, they all just graduated, but they want to keep uh, using the system because they're going to be in the classroom and they want to keep that access to the content and access to the, the groups that they've created. Many of them, surprisingly, have actually moved into Facebook because it's an area that uh, is not controlled by the institution. So we can't say, say in September, you don't have access anymore. They, they want to be maintaining control. And that comes to the decentralized side of things. It's, it's very important to find ways for students to own their work. And if they're doing that in the institutionally supported uh, system, that becomes harder to do. Uh, so I'm just going to quickly show some of these tools. And we've got tools like feed to js which actually Alan Levine started. Uh, it's a very cool way to embed RSS feeds on web pages. Uh, makes it cool. So if you have a, a class website, you can actually embed RSS feeds from uh, some of the blogs, some of the, the, the things that people are publishing. Uh, Superglue is an, a really cool tool that's been around for a couple of years now uh, that lets you build essentially a mashup website based on a set of feeds. Uh, Pipes, Brian talked about a little bit. It lets you do things like take 15 RSS feeds, merge them together, and show me only things tagged with Zoology 471. So you can do subsets and filters and really cool things that way. Um, Ning is another really cool tool that people can use to create social websites without having to know code. And then they, they can use that as part of the classrooms. But what I really want to show here is uh, an example of a, a directory. Um, I've been thinking and talking about this idea I call EduGlue, which is a, I had this idea that it would be the one true thing. If we could, if we could build this tool, uh, that would solve everything. And recently, largely thanks to Northern Voice and the discussions I had there, I realized that's 
that's entirely the wrong approach. So I've been rethinking that and realizing that all we really need is this directory that people are able to manage and identify their own personal publishing in there. Uh, so I'm going to put, uh, let's see, let's just give me a second to load up here. This is a directory that I created using some software called Blogridge, Blogbridge Feed Library. Uh, it's free for educational use, uh, blogbridge.com. Uh, but what I've done is set up a place where we've got a group called Open, Connected, and Social. In this case, it's a group. It could be for the class. It could be for a faculty, however you want to do that. And I've identified a bunch of feeds. I've got the class feeds. There's the, uh, uh, the class website at openconnectedsocial.learningparty.net. There is the, uh, the wiki, recent changes. But I've also created some groups within that. There's class blogs, in this case for each semester. So if I just click on, say, Spring 2007, these are some sample people that I put in. You might recognize some of the names. I used a fake name generator for, for another one. But people can add links to their feeds. So if I click on my folder, within there I've got a couple different feeds. One is my blog. Another one is my blog that I created on uh, uh, Jim's WordPress multi-user site. So it's in, in one sense, it's a centralized system. Uh, let me just, yeah, uh, Scott just has a uh, question on how do you add. You do need an account in the system to edit it. It's not just openly editable. So we have to look at um, uh, integration with logins and what. So there is, yeah, it's a manual process. You would click on add item. You'd fill in some blanks, give it the title, the URL of the, of the site, the URL of the feed. You can give it some tags so you can find things easily and then put it in the structure. Um, so you would manually add things, but you could also have a TA helping out with that as well. So you can work with your TA to get things structured in there. But the cool thing you get with that, let me just go up to the top of Open Connected Social. This is an amazing tool because it's got this tool here, this little blue icon is a reading list. It's an OPML file that contains information about all things belonging uh, at or below that level. So if I subscribe to this OPML file in whatever reader I use, it's now decentralized. I can use Google Reader, BlogBridge, whatever I want. Uh, I can take this OPML file and subscribe to it, and I would be subscribing automatically to any content that's contained in these groups down below. If I only care about Spring 2007, I can grab the OPML for that, and I don't see the noise from everything else. If I only care, say, about Brian's, I can click on him and subscribe just to his feeds. So it's a really nice way to emphasize the centralized uh, uh, structure you'd have from the class but giving control to the users. And that's, that's the critical thing that's happening in the last uh, couple of years is that users are realizing that they need control. And you know, people that are building software are starting to, uh, to realize, oh, you actually do need to give control to the users. It's not about what we want. It's about what they want. So that's a very cool way to, to uh, do that. You can also click, if you don't want to be using an RSS aggregator, you don't have to grab the feed or the OPML file. You can actually just click on the title and see the content right here. So it makes it a very handy way to start going through the content without having to uh, have the overhead of installing readers and whatnot. But it also leverages what people are already doing. More and more people now are using RSS aggregators. So the idea of building the institutional aggregator that sucks everything in and that's where students have to go to see what's new is entirely wrong. Let's provide a directory where people can identify what they're publishing wherever they're publishing it. As long as it spits out RSS, we don't care. And they can, uh, people can subscribe to only what they care about which is pretty, pretty handy. Um, what I've also done on the, uh, the, the main Open Connected Social website, I created a tab called Group Posts. And on there, I'm using a service called Grazer, which is a really cool embedded OPML browser. 
and because Blogbridge feed library generates OPML, I have subscribed this particular one to the, op the OPML file for the entire open, connected, and social group. And here's a version of that same directory embedded on our web page. So if I want to see what's new, well, what, what has Jim posted lately? It, it's a way to embed that directly on the class website. So here's Jim's latest post. I don't have to have an aggregator from on the road. I don't have to worry about syncing my bookmarks and whatnot. It's all there. So it makes it very nice to, uh, to integrate things. Um, so I, I think things like the, uh, the, the using the directory approach and letting people pu publish wherever they want to is really going to make things possible, both from the institutional point of view, where you professors are nervous about necessarily letting people publish wherever they want because it's hard to, to understand the context of the classroom. But if you give a directory, you can actually create the classroom context. So you're, you're creating structure from chaos. People are publishing wherever they want. It could be uh, Facebook, LiveJournal, it doesn't matter. But using a tool like this, you can actually start applying uh, uh, structure to it. So it, exactly, it works both ways. Um, another thing you can do from the institutional point of view, a lot of uh, uh, professors are saying things. They want things like the, uh, the academic archive. They, they don't want a student to post something on the blog and come back after they get the grade and appealing and saying, well, I never said that. Uh, so you need, there are some needs to have an institutional archive. But what you can do is actually have something like a Drupal website or an institutional aggregator and subscribe it to this OPML file and every hour it downloads any new content. And then you have your institutional archive in a decentralized way tied into the centralized uh, directory where students are publishing where they already are. And that's, uh, I think this is potentially a game changer where we can actually start using this stuff. Um, and the only thing that's changed since 2004 is that the, the tools have evolved. Aggregators are out there. Everyone, just about everyone that I, I know has either using an aggregator or is aware of an aggregator and could use it very quickly. Um, and now things like these directories and uh, uh, services like WordPress.com, et cetera, they're all just enabling people to do whatever they want, wherever they want. And I think what we really need to do is enabling that rather than fighting against it and saying, uh, uh, saying you have to do it our way or it doesn't, you won't get grades for it. Uh, we need to be taking advantage of what people are doing wherever they're doing it. And again, it all comes down to the, the standards, the open standards. All this stuff is based on RSS. It's been around for years. It's, it, it, it's, it's solid. It's been working for hundreds of thousands, millions of websites, of blogs. And OPML, which is a, a, a well-defined, structured uh, list of, of things format. So providing lists of uh, websites, whatnot. Uh, one thing you could do, I mentioned tags before. Uh, I've got this stuff from elsewhere thing here, and it's actually subscribed to delicious tagged items, uh, items on delicious that are tagged with open connected social. So it's crawling delicious every now and then, seeing what, what new things are tagged with this. So students could very easily be sharing resources without having to blog it just by going to delicious and tagging it. Uh, doesn't have to be delicious. Any service that generates RSS based on a, on a tag will work. Um, and again, things like Flickr photos. Anything on Flickr tagged with open connected social is instantly shared with everybody on the class. So we're not making people say, well, if you want to share a resource, you have to come to this website and create a new blog entry called a resource and give it the URL. No, just go to Delicious, tag it with open connected social, and boom, everybody in the class gets it. Uh, we had a discussion here at the Teaching and Learning Center oh, just a couple of months ago, actually. We were involved seems like a lifetime ago, in building a repository called Cario, uh, the Campus Alberta Repository of Educational Objects. And it was a, you know, it was supposed to be the institutional repository for sharing this stuff. And we were thinking, well, do we want to worry about fixing this 
now very old software. Do, do we want to fix it up to be modern so it understands tagging and all these things? Or let's just take a step back and rethink what would we do now if we were to build a repository? And we realized, well, everyone's using Google. A lot of people are using Delicious. There's your repository. Use your tags, throw your stuff on Delicious, and come up with a native interface, maybe something like this, or using Grazer or some other aggregators based on tags and what people are already doing. Uh, and again, David Wiley in his talk at uh, BCNet made essentially the same point. He didn't quite say it that blatantly, but people are already using this stuff. Let's take advantage of that and not fight against them. Um, Let's see. There are some more links on here. Things. There's a link right to the example of, of Grazer. But definitely check out some of these tools. And uh, there are many more that I'm not mentioning here. I just didn't want to get too many examples to get too bogged down. But what's happening lately is that individuals are empowered, and we need to be paying attention to that rather than fighting against it. And with that, I think I'm going to hand it over to Alan to talk about the more social side of things. All right. Thanks a lot, Darcy. And uh, the crowd is still sticking around. And leave it to a bunch of uh, techno geeks to put uh, being social uh, to the end of the presentation. And while my uh, screen is coming up, uh, go down to that uh, black graphic, uh, Darcy, with the di uh, diagram. Uh, I'll just, my own little disclaimer is that um, I'm a little bit worried about so many social services. There's many that are cool. And at the same time, um, I'll tell you, I don't do Facebook. I don't do MySpace. I probably should. I know there's some things of value in there, but there's only so much time in the day to uh, get into some of these things. And um, I'll come back to that right at the end. Yeah, and Twitter is just a, another one that I'm going to spend some time talking about uh, in this session. But first of all, the, 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 net, the idea about social networks really came about because of this realization by looking at and analyzing traffic on the internet, which was kind of a brand new sort of form of network that did exist but wasn't really recognized before came this realization that uh, the same kind of connections work for people. So you can find many interesting diagrams. And like my colleagues, I rummaged around on the Flickr Creative Commons site just yesterday and found this really great image that um, can sort of make my point. Getting on to what this is really about is that um, this notion of, and I'm not asking you to buy it or not, the wisdom of crowds or crowd theory. And there's books on it. There's Malcolm Gladwell's Blink. Um, there's Link, which is the book that I'm referencing to that talks about networks um, and, and quite a bit more. But with these social services, there's something that happens that one gains individually by using something like Flickr to organize your personal photos or Delicious to organize your links. But there's an added gain at really no cost to you by kind of mingling all that stuff with other people's um, activities. So that out of that crowd, um, when it works very well, um, comes things to you that you don't really necessarily have to research in great detail yourself. So just by this individual activity aimed at some amount of organization. And I'm down on the next diagram, Darcy. Um, uh, there's some great things that happen. So I'm not going to really talk too much about technology, but on my next section, um, one of the services that I just constantly go back to in terms of what um, does this right is, is Flickr in terms of the interaction and the way they set up connections between people. Um, next section, Darcy, um, who's steering this for me. And in Flickr, um, uh, I am guessing, but I imagine quite a few of you use Flickr. 
that you have this ability to, as you're looking through different pictures on the site behind, besides yourself, you can add people as contacts. And that forms your own sort of network of photos. And there's a way to view your contacts' latest photos. And you can actually get an RSS feed for that. You can put a badge of your contacts on your website, et cetera. But the thing that's really beautiful is you come across a photographer. And I found this network diagram. And it was by this uh, guy, Toby Malloy. And I clicked this profile. And to make a contact with Toby, uh, to create a relationship, I just have to click one link. Now, Toby gets an email. He, it says that, you know, Alan likes your photos. He made your contact. And, you know, Toby can say, can feel good about that. He can check out my photos and make the contact back. He can ignore it, et cetera. But the process of initiating that contact is, is really simple. And that's what kind of leads me into my next little section on the tale of two networking experiences. And this goes back to uh, late January when actually in one day I tried two um, social network services. And I just wanted to concentrate more on the experience of how one creates your networks within these. So um, I had been getting these invitations to LinkedIn for a couple months. And I've been ignoring them because I don't have time to make all these networks. Uh, but you know, some people were saying it was worthwhile. And I went to check it out. And actually, there's a lot to be said for LinkedIn. It's a really great way to organize your professional contacts to represent yourself. I have been told, and it's been confirmed to me, that people have made significant contacts, have found funders for projects, et cetera, through LinkedIn. Um, what I didn't like was this whole process of making a contact. In order to create a contact with, say, uh, my colleague Darcy or Scott Leslie, uh, I'd have to go to LinkedIn as a website. There wasn't a really place to, to click on, uh, say, Darcy's profile and say, add Darcy as a link. I had to go to a web form. I had to find his email address. I had to go back to my email program or remember it. I had to type it in. Darcy gets an email. He has to click a link that goes to a website to accept it. Comes back to me. I get another email. So all this transaction in LinkedIn is really done uh, through email as the communication metaphor. There's no RSS. There's nothing you can syndicate and sort of put as dynamic data on your blog. There's no APIs that can make uh, enable you to create applications that might contribute or interact with content on LinkedIn. So it's pretty much a standalone device. Now, again, I'm not really knocking what LinkedIn does. It's just not my cup of tea for the way it works in terms of creating social networks. At the same time, I've been hearing about and ignoring also this thing called Twitter. And um, if I could just get a hand raise uh, or a uh, little emoticon for people who uh, have heard of or might be using Twitter, if you're still out there listening. Um, so a, a couple of you. It's really something different. And I'll talk a little bit more later about what it does. Um, and it's rather hard to describe. But basically, it's a quick and easy way to constantly update what you're doing in the moment. And you're left within this uh, framework of your messages being 140 characters at the max. What they do well with this is you can um, post to Twitter through their website, through a form. You can do it through your, your uh, mobile phone, so you don't have to be on a computer to be doing this. You can do it through IM. And they have an open API that applications uh, can also post to Twitter. And what happens is, as you sort of are publishing on Twitter, you know, what you're doing, et cetera, you uh, find other people who are doing this activity. And they have this sort of one-click ability, again, like Flickr, to add people to your contact. And what happens is, on your Twitter homepage, you not only display the things that you're doing, 
um, you also see this constant running stream of what other people are posting. And it's a little bit strange, and I'll talk a little bit more about the initial reaction that, that I had and most other people had, but you get this really continual flow of somewhat disjointed but somewhat connected conversations. And it's not only about people saying, you know, oh, I just made coffee, oh, I'm just walking the dog, oh, it's time for my yoga class, although you see a lot of that. There are a lot of people who are looking at it as kind of an organizational tool and a productivity tool. And our own Darcy really had a good description of it as um, nanoblogging and uh, another reference um, that was well written by uh, Ross Mayfield on um, Many to Many. But I want to get down to this little uh, diagram I, I sketched up last night on the Twitter life cycle. And I see this happen um, quite a bit as people go through this process of trying Twitter. And in the beginning, and this is my reaction, um, that this is the dumbest thing that I've ever heard of. Like, why would anybody else want to take the time to constantly say, this is what I'm doing, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm eating, etc. So OK, maybe I'm inclined to create an account. I'm still not really that interested, because I'm posting my Twitter. I really don't have any or many contacts. And what's the point of me just kind of documenting, you know, I scratch my knee, I walk the dog, et cetera. But at some point, you know, some of your contacts out there in your social network, which might be just people you read as blogs, it might be people you email with, um, they sort of send you an invite to be a contact on their Twitter. Or you start seeing, you know, the amount of contacts. I might go to Darcy's page. And there might be, uh, maybe he's got 50 contacts, and he's got this great conversation flow. And this little uh, diagram or cartoon that um, Darcy brought up is pretty um, attributable to that. And at some point, as if you start twittering a little bit sporadically, you're going to start building up a collection of contacts. And occasionally, and I've had this happen, that um, people will send uh, perhaps a link, mention of a technology, an interesting project, et cetera, um, that they just drop into Twitter. And it's just another stream of information discovery that takes a lot less time than, say, writing a full blog post, because you only have to write 140 characters. And once you start to get some interesting and useful nuggets out of there, your kind of interest in this um, really starts to pick up. You start to experiment things with, like, um, last week I tried, uh, instead of conference uh, blogging from a uh, conference I went to, I tried just Twitter and a couple occasional comments and web references. And then people just get really addicted. And then I don't really know what happens at the top, whether people uh, fall off the edge. I kind of go in and out of Twitter. I see a lot of people doing it constantly. Um, if you do it through the IM client, it really doesn't take much time to do. And down below, I'll talk about some tools that allow you to do that um, from your blog. So I got really hooked onto this um, from some a post from Cole Campley's at Penn State, um, where they're really taking a serious look at using it as sort of a group organization tool as a way for people within their um, technical organization to let people know where they are at projects, where they are in meetings, as a much more um, quick and easy um, and possibly effective, maybe not, uh, mechanism than just sending emails or uh, pointing people to a group uh, calendar. Um, so, and there's been a lot of uh, blog reactions. If you scroll down, um, uh, Scoble's been all over this. Um, this post by Ross Mayfield on uh, Twitter, uh, tipping the tuna, as kind of a play on jumping the shark in terms of looking at some uh, data in terms of the, the use of uh, Twitter, et cetera. 
So uh, getting down a little bit, uh, ScreenMeister down to some of the Twitter publishing viewing tools. Uh, these are really just uh, coming out right now. If we could uh, go down the page a little bit. Uh, Twitter itself, um, if we could scroll down a little bit. Um, Twitter itself offers you sort of these cut and paste um, uh, JavaScript that allows you to embed sort of your latest set of twits or tweets, as people call them, on your website. So automatically, as you update Twitter, it pushes out con content um, to your website. The example there um, is really worth interesting uh, to take a look at it sometime. There are a group of international K-12 students who are doing a collaborative project looking at the future of technology. And these are students in five different countries who are working in teams. And they're basically assigned on teams where there might be one student from the US, one from Bangladesh, and one from Australia. And they're basically using Twitter embedded into a Wikispace page to update the other team members about the work they're doing on their project. It's quick, easy, and effective. Uh, Twitterific is this awesome uh, Mac OS X tool for uh, posting to Twitter. It's uh, really uh, quick and seamless. Um, all Twitter accounts have RSS feeds, and, and Twitter basically plays by um, the, the loose, um, small pieces, loosely joined rules, and the fact that it's it's open, it's free, it does something rather focused really well. It has open APIs, and it publishes a lot of things out as RSS, so you can reuse it. Um, Alex King recently came out with a Twitter Tools plugin for WordPress that allows you to do things so you can have it so every time you publish a new post on your WordPress blog, it automatically gets pushed out to your Twitter stream. So it um, does that sort of uh, publishing for you automatically, as well as embedding your latest tweets in your own blog. Um, there's some other tools for people who are messing around in kind of a mashup between uh, Second Life and Twitter, so things that you're doing in Second Life, another insanely, insanely social environment um, can be pushed out to Twitter. And a new service I just stumbled across recently is um, a service called RSS to Twitter that basically can take any RSS feed and push it out to a Twitter account. So as soon as the RSS updates, um, it, that information gets uh, pushed out to Twitter. And getting down to just some of the examples, are, um, the, where I found that was um, there's a library in the town of Casa Grande, which is halfway between Phoenix and Tucson, that did this as a demo, and it works. They have an RSS feed from their library in terms of their latest news from the library, and it gets pushed out to a Twitter account as just another way um, to kind of remix and republish information. Um, there's some people who've dealt with uh, Twitter in sort of tracking uh, catastrophes during an um, earthquake that happened in Mexico City. Uh, Twitter Vision is really kind of amazing. It's a little bit addictive. It's a mashup with Google Maps. And there's a way in Twitter to be able to um, specify um, through just including a tweet that has an, a capital L, a colon, and your location. And this actually is showing you in real time people around the world that are posting uh, tweets. And it's going to move uh, with you. And you're just finding uh, this sort of flow of what people are doing all over the country. Now, what's the actual application of this? I don't know. But um, it's easy to get fascinated by uh, watching this activity. Um, there's another recent uh, sort of copy of this that does uh, something similar with meshing this up with um, Google Earth. Let's not run there. Um, and there's a Twitter map um, thing, which um, 
sort of shows if you pass it as a parameter, your Twitter username, it'll show yourself geolocated and all the other um, people who are around in your immediate area who might also be uh, Twittering. So there's a little bit of uh, discovering of this. So um, this one uh, right here is actually, I think, um, was, uh, oh, we're doing uh, Calgary here. So Darcy zooming in on whoever is Twittering in Calgary. So we're kind of mixing back um, just to see some of the things that uh, Brian talked about in terms of uh, connecting uh, two sets of discrete data. Um, you got the Google Map interface, and all the pins are showing you um, in near real time uh, the people in your geographic or a geographic area um, who are uh, Twittering. And it, it just, um, again, can get a little bit um, insanely addictive. So um, I caution you on that. Um, just some other things back there. Um, John Edwards has a Twitter account, um, and every time I go back, his contacts flows off the bottom of the page and down to the floor. Last night, he had 2,228 friends, um, and he actually is, or maybe his staff member is doing this um, as sort of a way of what he is doing in this presidential campaign. Um, there's a couple other people have been writing about using Twitter for productivity tool. Andy Carvin had a great blog on sort of uh, using Twitter um, for sort of social services and social uh, situations and, and uh, international aid, et cetera. Um, I found a reference to someone using Twitter for doing um, posting some uh, server status uh, monitoring. Um, there's some churches that are looking at ways of using Twittering, which kind of blew my mind. And then that last little link for uh, Twitter start, start for all um, is really like this comprehensive one page, a giant link page of all kinds of resources and examples. So uh, Twitter, it's not anything necessarily that is going to radically change or maybe that you want to jump in and adopt in terms of an educational tool, but it's, it's just rather interesting as a social connectivity tool and what it does. Um, in terms of the way for connecting people, information, et cetera. So um, my last little uh, closing note under a uh, warning, warning there, uh, just in this month's uh, Wire Jargon Watch is uh, something I think I'm coming down with, um, social network fatigue. Um, there are just so many of these. I mean, there were none of these services in 2004. Uh, there's a little bit of friend of a friend sort of as a uh, technology. Um, but uh, there are so many of these, and it's going to become incumbent on us to sort of figure out um, a way or a mechanism to find out which ones might be useful. You can't really do them all, so um, that's why I'm not Facebooking right now. And with that, I think uh, we've been talking all here long enough, and we should really get back to uh, letting our audience do some participation and answer some questions. So I'm going to shut the mic off and turn it back to the crowd. Okay, well, let's uh, have some people ask some questions or give some comments. Uh, you're free to use the mic or go ahead and use the chat box and uh, our presenters will speak uh, as they will.
Okay, well, I have a sort of philosophical question for the group. Um, we're in the middle of, you know, an ever-evolving uh, technological shift where we're seeing more and more of the quote-unquote Web 2.0 tools start to really take effect in the population and and uh, the communication between individuals is is accelerating and, and connections are being made each and every day through uh, you know Yahoo uh, tubes and through Twitter etc and uh, I think that this concept of social network fatigue points us towards something that's happening in our consciousness uh, about what we're doing. Uh, does anybody have any idea of what's over the horizon, if, if we're going, uh, what, what it might look like in about two or three years? I'll, I'll jump in quickly just to underline a point Darcy made. Um, when we were reflecting on the event we did, Small Pieces Loose to Join 2004, we were struck by, for the most part, the technologies we were talking about then are still the technologies we're talking about now, blogs, wikis, and we thought RSS would be the core component of pulling that stuff together, and we still do think that. Uh, I mean, some things have come along. Online video certainly has come along in a way we didn't expect. Podcasting came along very shortly after that. I don't think we expected the phenomenal growth in Wikipedia, and I don't think we uh, expected uh, or recognized how significant Creative Commons was going to be. I think the things that about putting this session together excited me the most is that sense of things converging, um, the whole blicky thing, uh, being able to pull the, the best functionalities of the applications you want into something kind of like an integrated experience is what's exciting. Well, there's some other strange things. I mean, in 2004, tagging was just kind of starting. People were starting to do tags as categories, that kind of thing. And now, I mean, you can't do anything online without tagging. Uh, the other thing that's kind of a strange caveat, you have things like Facebook, which at first blush looks like this highly centralized uh, service that, I mean, if you, if you built something like Facebook for, for an institution, you'd say, okay, every student has to go in there, create a profile, and start you know, documenting what you're doing, students would rebel. But somebody just created this thing, and students found it, and there are students that live in this thing. And so on some campuses, there's 90% of students or more have Facebook accounts, and they're updating it regularly. So even though it's a centralized, you know, managed place, people are still going to it because it feels like it's theirs. And that's, I think, the, the big shift. Um, but where are we going to be in two years? I don't know. If I could guess that, I would probably be uh, retired on a beach somewhere. And uh, this is on, there's kind of this interesting, perhaps, tension building and some way to sort this out of how we deal with the fact that uh, people who are coming to our institutions, especially students who are involved in these uh, external services, 
are going to react when you come to a university institutional site, and that site is going to want you to uh, do their interaction within their environment. It's not to say we need to discard uh, what we're building or creating on our own, but it's it's an interesting dilemma to deal with uh, whether we have to build things that uh, kind of meet the standards or the flexibility of the open systems, or we have to build things that work with them, or we just start finding ways to creatively uh, work with those external systems. So it's, it's a really uh, definitely flip the whole um, LMS uh, sort of mindset uh, over on its back. Um, so it's going to be a little messy. So uh, I'm not sure if you guys are uh, passing me a mic or you just grab it, but uh, I think I've grabbed the mic. Um, you'll you'll uh, notice that I'm logged in as El Guapo, and if you'll remember the uh, famous Three Amigos film, uh, El Guapo was actually the villain. So I'm going to play the devil's advocate a, a little bit here. Um, you, you may have uh, seen um, this post. I just put it into the chat uh, uh, thing. Um, uh, uh, it was a, it was a post by a guy named Steve Rubell about um, what he called the ladder of participation in social software, and um, what was interesting and potentially a little disturbing was um, that it uh, actually um, show it depicts uh, based on um, uh, I, I think some statistics uh, that at least fifty percent of the people aren't in fact. Uh, uh, participating, um, and that you know, when you're talking to this crowd about social s software, I think you're largely preaching to the converted. But um, that uh, um, you know, it's it's not uh, you know fully adopted. It's not a slam dunk. There's lots of uh, challenges, and I, I guess so. One thing I would just throw out to you, especially to Darcy there around the the edubly thing there, is that the the um, for for better or worse, the 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 um, the, the barrier um, that uh, we need to get over in terms of the loosely coupled approach is that, um, uh, uh, like it or not, in a modern day LMS, when instructors go there, their students are already there. Right? We've spent the last seven years doing the integration work um, with the SMSs. Um, and uh, so there's an expectation now that, uh, you know, Things just work, and so I do understand with more loosely coupled approaches that um, you know, with the freedom comes some responsibility, uh, and and so there there may need to be some efforts uh, to uh, um, you know for people to gather the feeds to create the cores themselves. That this is you know a positive step forward, but. Um, but the flip side of it is that uh, um, you've got people like if you look on this this ladder that aren't even participants to begin with, um, and now you're asking them to start to engage with the technology in a much more work-intensive way than they already are. Um, how do we overcome that? I guess is my question for you. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I mean, there was a couple things going on in, in the larger uh, perspective. And say 20 years ago, the number of people who were contributing, who were publishing content, was a fraction of a percent. Uh, like say it's like 0.1 percent of everybody on the planet was a publisher. Uh, you had to get a book deal. You had to own a newspaper. You had to license Spectrum for radio stations. That kind of thing. What's happening now is more and more people are able to because the tools are enabling that. But you still have here in this case 52 percent who are inactive even with the tools we have. Uh, 
exactly. So how, how do we get around that? We could have better uh, tools within the LMSs. People, our profs are definitely more comfortable in the LMSs. A lot of students are too. Maybe things like that feed directory, the feed library, is actually part of your LMS account. So as you sign up for your email account on campus, one of the things you fill in is where else do you publish? If you don't, here's the URL for your blog and the manual on how you go ahead and do that. A lot of it, I think, has to do with some, uh, some information literacy. The people may not be publishing this stuff, but it's not that they can't. It's just that they aren't either aware of it or they're intimidated. So I think we have a lot of education to do on that point of view. So uh, there's there just a, a rejoinder to that. So um, I, I appreciate the, the the sentiment that you know maybe the LMS is the place to, for this to happen. And I, I'm actually uh, personally not arguing for that. I actually think that's actually the wrong direction to go. Um, uh, and a post I wrote recently, uh, I, I think you might have saw, um, uh, you know, based on talks with David, was my realization that by doing that. We, we actually dis disable a lot of the network effects that are the things that actually um, uh, make social software work. Um, so I don't think it's a question of, okay, taking these things but doing them in their safe environs. I think it is more of a question of, you know, to bring Brian's thread together with your thread, that, um, you, you know, uh, the SIS and the cohort, you know, the cohorts that they contain in there, if we're still going to go on a cohort-based system, um, that needs to become matchable information. That needs to be stuff that you can very easily pull out, create your OPMLs by, or just ideally do it automatically. For me, that's what the edge glue was when we were talking about it, Darcy, was, um, you know, you, you've got the ability to uh, work in an open space and all these tools, but um, you, you've got these uh, uh, back-end systems that we need to tie into, and then if we don't, we're still asking people to cross a chasm that they're not necessarily going to be willing to do. And Josh, when I see your comment, it's an administrative problem. Well, yeah, <laughs> so is most of what we're doing, uh, right? So I, I think that that's kind of a, a dismissive thing to say. This is a, actually a, a, a real problem I think we need to solve. Yeah, again, good points, and thanks for bringing those up, Scott. Uh, there's some intermediate steps, though. Things like at, at UCalgary, we, we run a blog system uh, called weblogs.ucalgary.ca. It's actually integrated with our university LDAP, so anybody with a U of C email account can log in using their same account, and everybody, all 30,000 students, already have a blog whether or not they know about it or whether or not they use it. So there are intermediate steps where we can do sort of half integration. Um, but I think there are bigger issues, and one of the comments sort of alluded to this. Uh, Stephen Downs has been writing about this for quite a while, where when we start saying that learning occurs outside the classroom and people should be going public, what does that mean for the role of the university? What, what does it mean to get a degree from, a, from an institution? And I think that is where things might have to start changing. Uh, things like people not getting academic credit for publishing a blog. Well, that's changing. I, I think blogs in in a lot of ways are more useful than uh, than peer-reviewed journals just for the sheer fact that more people have access to read it. Uh, it's all about getting information out there as opposed to locking it down and controlling. And that, I think, is the sea change that's coming. What that is going to mean, I, I really don't know. But I think that's what we need to start thinking about because it's going to come down the road. And unfortunately, it looks like Jim's microphone might be uh, working on us. Uh, uh, next question, Katie.
Okay, it looks like audio for some of the participants might be uh, dropping out. I'm thinking there might be a bandwidth issue. So uh, if you have a question, uh, feel free to put it in chat and one of us can uh, read it out. Uh, maybe just flag it with, you know, read this out and we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Uh, Jay, you can just expect that any website you put up now where there's a text area form field, um, you are going to get uh, spammed by the bucket load. And it seems to be a fact of life. And it's terribly sad, but we just opened our new Drupal site. A couple announcements. Within an hour, I had 100 uh, porn comment links. Yeah, actually, the spam is probably one of the bigger issues. When you start opening access that anybody can post, and the first things that were really open that way were anonymous comments on blogs. Uh, my blog, if I turned off my spam filters, I would get about 10,000 spams posted to my blog every day. Now, who is going to manage a site and manually approve which, are, which of the 10,000 comment attempts a day are good or not? Uh, I, I'm not. I let software do that. But that also opens up to who gets to put URLs for for content into the, the institutional director, uh, directory. Who gets to share information with the class? I mean, that will be an, a possibility for spam if that's left too open. But on the flip side, you don't want to lock it down. So yeah, control, I think there's a, a fine line we want to find and follow. And I think given that we've gone on for an hour and a half here, it's probably time to start uh, wrapping it down. If there are any urgent questions, uh, feel free to throw them in here. Uh, we'll also be putting a recording of this online at the Mac Learning Environments Center website, and we'll probably link from our own blogs as well. So it'll definitely be available for, uh, if anything, is, is useful for reference. But yeah, fire off any last minute questions. Well, if uh, there aren't any other questions, um, I would like to, on the behalf of Mac Learning Environments, thank our uh, speakers today for coming and uh, sharing uh, some really uh, exciting, cutting-edge uh, information on what's happening and uh, making our brains churn. Uh, and I'm looking forward to the next iteration of this talk. It seems like it's uh, it's going to be a theme for you guys. So thank you very much, everybody. Uh, let's. Uh, you hit our little clap icon uh, to you know thank our, our speakers and thank you all for coming. As Darcy said, this talk will be archived. Uh, if you go to maclearningenvironments.org, you'll be able to access that probably, I'm guessing, within a couple of weeks. It needs to be uh, processed and, and uh,